Welcome to your Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention once again to the reading of the New Testament, the scripture today will be from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. We actually begin reading the book of Luke for the first time today. And here is an overview of what we'll be reading about in the New Testament. Luke tells Jesus' story from the unique perspective of a Gentile, a physician, and the first historian of the early church. Though not an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry, Luke nevertheless was concerned that eyewitness accounts be preserved accurately and that the foundations of Christian belief be transmitted intact to the next generation. In Luke's gospel are many of Jesus' parables. In addition, more than any other gospel, it gives specific instances of Jesus' concern for women. There was a lot of interest in Jesus. Many people had written first-hand accounts about him. Luke may have used these accounts and all other available resources as material for an accurate and complete account of Jesus' life, teachings, and ministry. Because truth was important to Luke, he relied heavily on eyewitness accounts. Christianity doesn't say, close your eyes and believe, but rather, Check it out for yourself and you'll believe. The Bible encourages you to investigate its claims thoroughly because your conclusion about Jesus is really a life-and-death matter. We'll read about a guy named Theophilus. This uh, name means one who loves God. The book of Acts, also written by Luke, is likewise addressed to Theophilus. This preface that we'll be reading here may be a general dedication to all Christian readers. Theophilus may have been... Luke's patron, who helped to finance the book's writing. A more likely, Theophilus was a Roman acquaintance of Luke's with a strong interest in the new Christian religion. Now, uh, as a medical doctor, Luke, Dr. Luke, knew the importance of being thorough. He used his skills in observation and analysis to thoroughly investigate the stories about Jesus. His diagnosis? The good news of Jesus Christ is true. You can read Luke's account of Jesus' life with confidence that it was written by a clear thinker and a thoughtful researcher. Because the good news is founded on historical truth, our spiritual growth must involve careful, disciplined, and thorough investigation of God's Word so that we can understand how God has acted in history. If this kind of study is not part of your life, find a pastor, a teacher, or even a book to help you get started and to guide you through this important part of Christian growth. We'll also read here today that God answers prayers in His own way and in His own time. He worked in what we would consider an impossible situation, Elizabeth's age and barrenness, two big strikes against a woman trying to have a baby. But He did this to bring about the fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning the Messiah and to prove that He's God. If you want to have your prayers answered, you got to be open to what God can do in impossible situations. And you must wait for God to work in His way and in His time. Now, angels are spirit beings. They appear here in Scripture today as we read. Angels are spirit beings who live in God's presence and do His will. Only two angels are mentioned by name in all of Scripture, Michael and Gabriel. But there are many who act as God's messengers. Well, here, Gabriel delivered a special message to Zechariah, and this was not a dream or a vision. The angel appeared in visible form and spoke audible words to the priest. This is a very exciting passage of Scripture we'll be reading today, so let's get started as we look once again into the New Testament. March 13th, 
the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was He who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Psalm 56, verses 1 through 13. Well, this psalm we'll be reading here today is probably written on the same occasion as Psalm 34, when David fled from Saul to Philistine territory. He had to pretend insanity before Achish, when some servants grew suspicious of him. David stated, What can mere mortals do to me? How much harm can people do to us? They can inflict pain, suffering, and even death. But no person can rob us of our souls or our future beyond this life. 
How much harm can we do to ourselves? The worst thing we can do is to reject God and lose our eternal life. Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Instead, we should fear God, who controls this life and the next. Even in our deepest sorrow, God cares. Jesus reminded us further of how much God understands us. Even the hairs on our head are all numbered. Often we waver between faith and fear. When you feel so discouraged that you're sure no one understands, remember that God knows every problem and sees every tear. Psalm 56, verses 1 through 13. For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time the Philistines seized him in Gath, to be sung to the tune, Dove on Distant Oaks. O God, have mercy on me, for people are hounding me. My foes attack me all day long. I am constantly hounded by those who slander me, and many are boldly attacking me. But when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? They are always twisting what I say. They spend their days plotting to harm me. They come together to spy on me, watching my every step eager to kill me. Don't let them get away with their wickedness. In your anger, O God, bring them down. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. My enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know. God is on my side. I praise God for what He has promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what He has promised. I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? I will fulfill my vows to you, O God, and will offer a sacrifice of thanks for your help. For you have rescued me from death. You have kept my feet from slipping. So now I can walk in your presence, O God in your life-giving light. Proverbs 11, verse 8 The godly are rescued from trouble, and it falls on the wicked instead. Good morning. Tyler Pack here with Transformation Radio, reminding you Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, Come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrence Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslifeschange.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio. Good afternoon. Good to see everybody. I hope you're well. Welcome to Veritas West. Before we get going, I just want to encourage you. You know, we just believe that the, that the Bible calls us as a church to be a family. And uh, if you, if you attend here regularly, if you if you're beginning to call this home, we just want to encourage you to to begin serving at the the Sunday gathering. This in particular, and if that's something that interests you at all, the the two areas that we're really needing a lot of help right now is in our Connect ministry, which is a lot of the things that you see here with hospitality, but then also with the kids. And so if you would like more information, we're not, if you fill it out, it's not like you're, it's set in stone or anything, but in the bulletin, there's this little tear out. 
if you want to fill that out and then place that in the offering baskets during the communion time, that would be fantastic. All right. Well, enough with that. Again, I hope you're well. Uh, we are, you know, I just want to, if you would, let's start off our time by uh, praying together. So let's uh, bow our heads. Dear Jesus, thank you for your word. What a large text that we're looking at. What an amazing book in Acts. What uh, a text that has been argued about in many different ways is difficult to understand in many different ways. My prayer, Lord, is that we would be faithful and encouraging and that, God, your scriptures would would speak life to us, that we may leave here and be more like you. And so thank you for your grace. Thank you for the songs we sang, that, God, we can come weary. I'm just reminded of Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come, you hear weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, Lord. Um, You don't call us to fix ourselves before we come to you. You just welcome us to yourself. And so I pray that we would feel and experience that invitation this evening. Amen. Amen. So we're in the book of Acts. If you're new um, at Veritas, we like to go through books of the Bible. And so we're in the book of Acts. We just started this last week. And so um, the, the scene here is that Jesus' physical earthly ministry has ended. Jesus uh, has lived, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended, as we saw last week. So now the promised Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit we've been hearing about, um, has exploded onto the scene. The church has begun. God's redemptive plan is in full motion. It's always been happening, but now um, you might say it seems a little bit more explosive. It seems very clear. It seems really big. But what we're looking at here, as I even just prayed about, is a difficult, it's a difficult text. Because it's a widely, it's a popular passage of Scripture, and it's been used in all sorts of different ways. And so we're looking at what's called Pentecost. Pentecost. So what happened, what does it mean, and what should we do? Those are the three things the three aspects of this text that we're going to examine. And my hope, my prayer for us is that we'd be faithful to God's Word and that we'd be brought to deeper faith in Jesus Christ. That's my hope. So what happened? What happened? I'm going to read verses 2 through 4 again. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Sounds a bit wild, right? Sounds a bit wild. If that was us tonight, we, it, it's just interesting. It's interesting. Large noises, wild wind, tongues of fire. Interesting. Now this is where a lot of folks will, will hit the brakes and we'll, uh, we'll start coming to all sorts of positions and conclusions. Even right now, most of you are probably like, what's he going to do with this one? Where are we going to go with this one? And as is often the case, we must first understand the context. So we're going we're gonna to camp out there for just a moment. Context changes things, and is, is what you'll find most often in the Bible, reading the Word, context is very important. 
So when we're talking about Pentecost, what is Pentecost? What are we talking about? Because that's how the text opens up, when the day of Pentecost arrived, verse 2. What are we talking about? Well, Pentecost was one of the Levitical feasts. What does that mean? Well, I found this written in Faith Life Study Bible, and this should be on the screen. It says, the most well-known feasts of Israel are those described in Leviticus 23, and that's in the Old Testament. The three pilgrimage feasts, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, these three feasts demanded that every male Israelite travel to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So the Feast of Weeks that was just mentioned in that, in that quote, that is Pentecost. And, and it's called the Feast of Weeks because it takes place seven weeks after the Passover. So one thing we need to understand is that during this time, many Jewish folks were in Jerusalem celebrating this traditional feast. They were all celebrating together. And then verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So the Levitical feast of Pentecost was the reason that all these Jews were dwelling together in Jerusalem. So we've got to understand that first. And it says that as a result of this sound, uh, this mighty rushing wind, this, this, this explosive sound that we heard about in verse 3, this multitude of Jewish folks came together. And what happened? Verse 6, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So they were Jewish people coming together from various nations, which means they were all Jewish folks, but they were speaking different languages, different dialects. But the interesting thing is they all understood each other in this moment. They understood each other. This is interesting. This is interesting. We see here what's often called by theologians the reversal of Babel. What does that mean? Trevin Wax writes this. Biblically speaking, we see the Tower of Babel. You probably heard about the Tower of Babel in Genesis, Genesis 11. Here we see people uniting. In Genesis 11, he's referring to, we see people uniting around a common cause to make a great name for themselves and build a tower up to the heavens. God, however, will have no part of any empire except his own. So he comes down and confuses their languages so that they scatter across the earth. On the day of Pentecost, we see an initial reversal of Babel. God gives everyone understanding. This is the end of Babel and the beginning of a new humanity. Instead of people climbing up to God, we testify that God came down to us, not in judgment, but for salvation. Instead of people gathering in one location to make their own name great, we are now scattering all over the earth to make God's name great. Instead of language being a barrier to man's mission of self-glorification, languages are now redeemed in order for the triune God's mission of glorifying himself to move forward. It's a good quote. It's a good quote. So let's tie this together. I will be the first to admit that in our circles, if you've been around Veritas or if you're new, this means nothing to you, but, but I would admit that maybe we don't emphasize the spirit enough in Reformed theology, but we must understand first and foremost, that this text is not a good argument for speaking in tongues as being prescriptive. What do I mean by prescriptive? 
This is a difficult test, text. We've got to do a lot of unpacking. Prescriptive. Think of when a doctor prescribes you something. He gives you instructions that you need to follow. You need to do. He's saying, hey, follow these instructions. So prescriptive in this regard means that the text is telling us something that we should emulate. Conversely, descriptive or describing something, describing an event, descriptive means the text is, the text is giving us facts simply describing what happened. In this particular case, Orthodox theologians for hundreds of years have have examined that this text is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing an event that happened. How so? How, How so? Tongues, in this case, right here we see, are known languages. They're known languages. So you cannot read this text and then go tell people they must speak in tongues. Because this text is descriptive, not prescriptive. Dr. Luke, the one who wrote this book, he's simply describing what happened with the people speaking in different languages and not necessarily giving us a prescription for what we should emulate. Does that make sense? Now, we could look at other texts, but I'm specifically talking about Acts 2. Let's go on, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And here's where it gets fun, and I'm I'm probably going to mess this up. Caleb did a good job. And how is this that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk, is what he was saying. I'm going to read one more quote by Trevin Wax. He says, The beauty of Pentecost is that God wants to receive glory from all kinds of people. And to that end, he ensures that his gospel will be proclaimed in all kinds of languages. It's easy to stumble over the tribes and nations listed here. It's a long list of obscure names, but they aren't unknown to God. He knows everyone. He knows your nation, your city, your town, your neighborhood. The Holy Spirit knows your dialect. He speaks to ordinary people like you and me, prompting us to share our faith, reminding us of what Jesus taught us. Babel is no match for Pentecost. The nuances of thousands of languages are not enough to capture the glorious nature of salvation through Christ. Beautiful. Now I want to focus real quick on on two particular verses, verse 12 and 13, which says, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? What does this mean? But others mockingly said, They are filled with new wine. See, we can either be amazed or we can mock God when He does something amazing. We can either find meaning or we can mock. It's verses like this where many would mock God. Look at those disciples. They must be drunk. They've had too much alcohol. Instead of mocking, we should look for meaning. Instead of mocking, we should be in awe. Look at what God did. Look at how He, he works in ways that we can't comprehend. Look at how you know, He does things that I don't fully understand in my limited humanity. So that's what happened. Now I want to I try to, to explain, what does this mean? What's this here for? 
And so at this point, what's interesting is right at the end where they're accusing the disciples, all those in the upper room, they're accusing them of being drunk. And at this point, Peter, Peter begins to preach. He starts to preach to the crowd. So let's read what he says. And I'm just going to take bits and pieces of it. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's go down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I want us to notice something here. Yes, the Holy Spirit has come upon God's people in the upper room. Yes, all that's going on. Yes, the church has, in certain circles, tended to focus on that. But directly following Peter's sermon, what does he begin to say? What's his message to the people? Let's read 32 again. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's Peter's response? Peter begins preaching Christ. Peter begins proclaiming Jesus as Lord. You know Jesus, the man you crucified, he's alive and he's God. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Notice that Peter's sermon is exceedingly exceedingly Christocentric, meaning what? Jesus is the core message to those that were listening. Peter's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is most definitely prescriptive for us because we see this happen over and over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. We are to follow this pattern. We are to follow this pattern. The Holy Spirit empowers the ministry of Christians to be witnesses of Jesus' gospel. The Holy Spirit makes Christians able to carry out Jesus' mission in the world. And so we can be encouraged because we're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit. And then 36 again says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Isn't that interesting? Peter's saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, he understands that we're all accountable to God for our sin. When we sin, we commit treason against God. Jesus' death atones for that sin, for that guiltiness. Jesus bridges that separation between us and God. And so when we read the Gospel of Luke, we see the Holy Spirit empowering Jesus' ministry all throughout the book. Now in Acts, we continue to see the Spirit empowering the church to continue Jesus' mission. So, 
what I'm not doing is, is we're not devaluing the Holy Spirit. We are valuing the Holy Spirit as being equally deserving of honor and praise as part of the Trinity. But the Holy Spirit's role is to empower us for the work of ministry to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at what Justin Holcomb wrote, one of my favorite theologians, and he writes this. We looked at it last week. It was in community group notes. He said, broadly speaking, this is a great summary, Christian theology teaches that the Father orchestrates salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. And the Spirit applies salvation. This is good news. And that's what, it, that's what this means, and we see that in Peter's sermon. So what happens? What did it mean? Now what should we do? What should we do? Let's read verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I love the sequence in this text. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's interesting. The disciples and the people in the upper room, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're accused of being drunk. Peter preaches. And those that, those that heard go from accusing them of being drunk to being cut to the heart. Interesting line, right? Cut to the heart. And, and then their response, what shall we do? In light of all this, what shall we do? And honestly, as I read that, as I studied that, that's our prayer for all of you, for all of us at Veritas. Many of you, maybe your story is, is you've mocked God. Maybe you've not believed. You've resisted religion. You've resisted Christianity. Maybe you've even been belligerently against organized religion or Jesus. But our prayer is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the gospel to sinners, you and I, that you'd go from mocking to finding meaning and wonder at the cross. My prayer is that by the Holy Spirit's work, you'd be cut to the heart. The Apostle Paul writes an interesting thing to the Corinthian church, which reads, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Our prayer is that you move from mocking to amazement to faith. I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you, Jesus. I believe you are not only a good guy. I believe you are alive and that you are God. And not only that, but you cared enough about me, not because I deserve it, that you gave up yourself. You sacrificed yourself for me. Every good story, I believe this, every good story, think about it. The movies we watch, the stories we hear, every good story is a story of redemption. Why is that? Because we were made hardwired with this story in our hearts. We long for a Redeemer even before we know it in our heads. We long for God. 
what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the moment we're saved, the Holy Spirit dwells with us, empowers us to have faith in Christ, empowers us to do the work of ministry. Repent and be baptized. Turn to Christ. Read and rest in God's Word. Pursue a relationship with God through the local church, through prayer, through community. And an invitation for you, we change things up a bit. Uh, we're going to have a baptism gathering at the end of, at the end of our worship service um, on March 1st, three weeks from now, here. And uh, I just want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized, or maybe you're like me, um, me and a few other people begin to pray about it and wrestle through it. We had a baptism service last April, and I just started remembering, like, I, my parents told me I was baptized when I was little, but it wasn't a conscious profession of, of faith. And so, I, you know, I, I chose to be baptized last April. And so if that's you, if, if you've never been baptized, or maybe you did when you, when you weren't consciously a Christian, I would encourage you to be baptized. It's something we celebrate. We're going to celebrate alongside you. It represents, you know, as we go into the water, it represents us identifying ourselves with Jesus' death. And as we come up from the water, identifying that, that God is risen and that we are now alive in Christ. And so I would encourage you, there's a sign-up at the Connect um, desk in the, in the back, back there after the gathering. I would just encourage you to sign up and participate in that. So March 1st is when that's going to take place. And so just be encouraged. You're welcomed in, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. It's because of grace. It's the same for the saint. It's the same for the sinner. It's the same for the rich. It's the same for the poor. God's grace is enough for you, no matter what your story is. It's good news. And so for you, Christian... We're called to be baptized, but also to repent. If you call yourself a Christian, let's real quickly be reminded that repentance isn't a one-time thing. We continue to repent. We continue to turn to Christ. We continue to grow in the gospel. And my hope as we go through Acts is that we just see the Spirit working in the church and it's exciting, but let's demystify the Spirit a little bit. When you turn away from a lustful image or you, or you refuse to look at pornography, that's the Spirit of God working. When you, when you disengage from an opportunity to gossip about someone else, that's the Spirit of God working in you. When you are generous instead of being stingy, that's the work of the Spirit in you. Repentance is not just a command for non-believers. Peter calls us to repent and to be baptized. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace that you invite us, not because of what we do, but because of what you've done. Many of us are walking with so much guilt, so much shame, so much fear, and Lord, you're welcoming us to yourself because we belong because of you. We can be forgiven because of you. Your presence says, you don't have to fear, I'm with you. I'm with you. So I pray that God, whatever situation, whatever our story is this week, some of us are just wrestling with various things. Where do I move to? Where do I work? How do I engage in community? What do I do? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? How could I ever evangelize? I just pray, God, that we would rest in your finished work that you did on the cross, that we trust you. 
We love you, Jesus. Amen. And that does it for today's podcast. Tune in tomorrow for another edition of Transformation Radio.